if China succeeds in changing its growth model uh, to one that derives much more support on internal private consumption, this will be the biggest middle-class consumption story that the world has ever seen. That's Stephen Roach, former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia and senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute of Global Affairs. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, chair of the Monk Debate, and welcome to the Next Debate podcast. The trouble is that most of the debate on these issues... We are debating an obligation we are already committed to. It comes after you and can haunt you. Any issue has caused me greater agony and anger. We are standing at the threshold of a great evolution. Very serious issues. Let's get to the point. For weeks now, financial markets have been in turmoil over whether a cooling Chinese economy will drag the world into recession. Renowned economist and Asia expert Stephen Roach thinks that the fears of a China crash are exaggerated and reveal how little we actually understand about the growing strength of China's domestic economy. For Stephen Roach, China is undergoing a challenging but ultimately manageable transition from an export to a consumer-led model of economic growth. The Future of China's Economy with Stephen Roach, next on the Next Debate podcast. Stephen Roach, welcome to The Next Debate. Pleasure to be with you. Let's dive right in here and talk about uh, China. It's a particular uh, passion of yours. You've got a lifetime of experience uh, understanding the Chinese economy. Yet you think the global anxiety is about a hard landing uh, in China by markets and by the larger economy are, are overblown at this moment. Well, yeah, there's a huge debate here. And my feeling is that... Um, there's a, a mismatch between what continues to be good success in uh, the structural rebalancing of the real economy uh, and uh, uh, poor results in addressing some of the uh, financial uh, underpinnings of that rebalancing, especially <clears throat> developments in the Chinese equity market and um, some gyrations in capital flows and uh, the currency markets. But I don't think that these financial sector developments in China are spilling over uh, into the real economy. And ultimately, I think that's what's going to keep uh, uh, the, the China growth story very much intact. Talk to us, though, about what, what you think the positive indications are, because many people speak you know, to not simply the lost in equity values, but China's individual debt, uh, subnational debt, corporate debt. Uh, the, the, the seeming kind of slowness, if not something worse, of their whole real estate uh, space and industry? I mean, how do, how do you push back against maybe some of these larger kind of macro clouds on the Chinese horizon? Well, I try to put them in context. I mean, uh, you know, China's uh, ha- certainly had a, a big um, push of debt-intensive growth since the financial crisis of uh, 08 and 09, uh, and it's now making a conscious effort to uh, unwind the leverage, the bulk of the the growth of overall indebtedness has been concentrated in its large state-owned enterprise uh, corporations where um, uh, the, the, the leaders there, in, in conjunction with local authorities, have relied on 
uh, leverage to, to, to boost infrastructure spending and uh, uh, property market investment. And uh, the government is making a conscious effort to, to now unwind that. And uh, those results, again, they, they seem to be working. They've resulted in a meaningful slowdown of overall economic growth. Uh, but the growth rate is far from collapsing. The economy is still expanding uh, at a 6 to 7% uh, annual rate, which is a number that uh, uh, most economies in the slow-growth world that we live in would die for. And the, 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 uh, the flip side of that is that, that what is far more important in understanding and assessing China is not the overall uh, GDP, where there obviously is some dispute over the accuracy of the numbers, but the changes in the mix of the economy. And so the industrial sector is slowing, again, a, a result of conscious strategic choices being made by uh, Chinese uh, officials in their 12-5-year uh, plan, which is now just about over. And that's being more than offset by significant increases in their services sector, which is now the largest econ- uh, sector uh, in the economy, and which is growing Oh, two to two and a half percentage points faster than the uh, uh, the manufacturing and construction sectors combined. You and others have rightly pointed out that China is at this somewhat perilous moment, the, the middle income trap, the moment where per capita incomes, historically, if you look at other Asian economies, often you know, suggest a really difficult transition from that export-led growth model to more of a, a domestic consumption leading and powering GDP. Are you optimistic that with everything China's grappling with, that they're going to be able to to solve for a problem that many other Asian countries just frankly failed? Well, I think uh, the Chinese, number one, are, are very transparent about uh, what they see to be the real challenges of this um, uh, difficult juncture that they're at, and if they fail, uh, you know, they they could well go the way of others that have been ensnared in this uh, middle-income trap. But um, the record of history is is that uh, the middle-income trap uh, ultimately stymies uh, economic development uh, for economies that do not change their growth model. Uh, they cling to the notion that what uh, boosted them in the early stages of development is the same recipe that will work as they um, uh, get wealthier, and yet uh, that that almost always turns out to be wrong. And so by shifting to more of a services-based growth model, more of a domestic consumption-based growth model, uh, and then focusing a lot on uh, indigenous innovation, which China rightly recognizes it is is one of the biggest challenges to avoid the so-called middle income trap. Uh, I think they've got a good chance to avoid it. Nothing is guaranteed uh, and it's 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 exceedingly uh, challenging and um, difficult work to do. but uh, you know this is really the, uh, the, the the core of China's strategic focus right now. It has been so over the last five years and will continue to be so over the next fifteen years. You pointed out though that a potentially worrying sign out there is the persistently high individual savings rate of uh, the average Chinese person. And that when you're trying to change uh, from export-led to consumer-led, if people are saving at these phenomenal rates, you know, orders of magnitude higher than anything we're doing in the Western world. Well, you know, the the strategy is, uh, number one, to uh, put in place 
policies that generate more income, and they're doing this through uh, services-led employment growth and um, moving workers from the countryside to the city where the uh, rural-urban migration really levers up the uh, the real wages by you know a factor of three. Uh, and then they create a lot more labor income, and that's starting to rise now as a share of GDP. But it it gets stymied if the, the labor income is saved and not spent, and, and I've pointed that out, as have others who have studied this process uh, in the past. And, you know, the household savings rate in China is close to 30% for urban workers, and... Um, uh, it's it's continued to rise in recent years, and the main reason it's continued to rise is that uh, there's a lot of financial insecurity of um, uh, with respect to the future, re- being able to afford retirement and health care, which is uh, pointed out all the more so by China's uh, demographically distorted uh, population um, with um, uh, fewer and fewer working age uh, individuals to support their families, their parents, uh, and their grandparents. So they've really now, uh, in, in the last couple of years, started, and I say started, to address this uh, social safety net issue head-on. They've enacted a number of reforms uh, that uh, could move the needle on uh, uh, the savings rate, but uh, you know that, that remains to be seen, and, and I think the government will have to continue to push very hard in that in that area. Do you feel at this moment that there's a, a kind of perverse glee often in the Western media, the Western press, about China seeming to, to stumble here? And, you know, if we were to have a more positive kind of mindset, a more, I don't know, an idea of, of helping China, what, what could America in particular do right now to help China through this transition? Well, look, I, I think the West is really had a, a difficult time understanding China for um, uh, for centuries. It goes way, way back, and um, that's very much uh, the case today. You know, there's, there's been a cottage industry of uh, sort of the, the China doomsday crowd that's been around uh, for a long time, but especially since the Asian financial crisis when most observers in the West... Um, uh, expected China to go the way of you know, Thailand and Indonesia and South Korea, and of course it didn't. And uh, the the world, I think, needs to, uh, to take a better look at China as more of a opportunity than a threat. And China is always looked at uh, through you know, with, with, is is the glass being half full and uh, getting uh, accused of. Um, Mercantilist trade policies uh, with an undervalued currency, uh, a lot of focus on uh, you know the, the 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 issues that we in the West have such a difficult time uh, uh, dealing with ourselves, like uh, like savings and current account imbalances. China, if if China succeeds in changing its growth model. Uh, to one that derives much more support on internal private consumption, this will be the biggest middle-class consumption story that the world has ever seen. And um, uh, to the extent that uh, uh, Western companies uh, and uh, economies like the United States uh, succeed in participating in this middle-class emergence and trading into it, it's a growth opportunity, which is particularly important given the 
sluggishness of, of our economy and other Western economies since the crisis. So uh, I think we've got to look at China with a, a little bit more of a constructive outlook in terms of uh, the changes it's making in its economy and what that portends in terms of a growth opportunity for an otherwise growth-starved world. You're listening to The Next Debate. I'm Rudyard Griffiths. My guest is the renowned economist and Asia expert Stephen Roach. Coming up, Stephen Roach explains how China and America's economic codependency is becoming a growing source of geopolitical risk. Debate. 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 Debates. The debate in this debate. If you're enjoying this podcast, visit us at www.monkdebates.com for outstanding public policy debates on the big issues of the day. Here, Glenn Greenwald take on ex-CIA chief Michael Hayden on state surveillance. See Tony Blair debate the late and great Christopher Hitchens on whether religion is a force for good in the world. Read Henry Kissinger's debate with Neil Ferguson on whether China will dominate the 21st century. These and other great debates free for watching, listening, and reading, all at www.monkdebates.com. Let's go deeper on this topic, because in, in your excellent recent book, Unbalanced, you, you really write about um, that what you see are some, some dangerous symptoms of codependency between the U.S. and China, with maybe more of the dependency, frankly, being on the U.S. side of the relationship than the Chinese. Uh, since writing Unbalanced in 2014, how are you seeing this play out now, and, and what, do you, what do you think the future could hold? Well, I made the point about codependency, because I think... Um it's a, it's a two-way uh, relationship. China's obviously dependent on the American consumer uh, as the, uh, the, the biggest market to sell the exports that um, ha- has driven economic growth to its spectacular uh, pace in recent years. But, you know, the, the, the U.S. has equally been dependent on China uh, for cheap, low-cost goods, which uh, income-constrained American consumers desperately have needed in recent years to make ends meet. And uh, China's loaned America its surplus savings because America is unwilling or unable to save, and um, China's gone further in investing that uh, surplus saving in U.S. Treasuries, which has come in very handy uh, in uh, funding outsized uh, budget deficits. But... um, you know, the, the, the rules of engagement in a codependent relationship are, are never stable, which is true in codependent human relationships as well. Uh, the more two partners rely on one another uh, in a human relationship, sometimes the, the, the tougher uh, and nastier uh, uh, the relationship becomes. And that's certainly been the case off and on U.S. and China in uh, recent years. And that's likely to become even more evident uh, in this political season. No, I'm just thinking the bluster of Donald Trump around China and the way that seems to be, I don't know, a red meat for a lot of uh, the Republican-American, I mean, heartland. What, what does, does that speak to, again, this codependency really starting to become dysfunctional on the American side? Well, we've had bluster in both parties over the last 10 years. We, you know, we've had it from the Democratic side, um, uh, during um, uh, uh, recent presidential campaigns. We had it on the Republican side with uh, Governor Romney uh, promising to declare China guilty of currency manipulation the first day he took over, which fortunately he never did. And now um, Donald Trump uh, proposing to levy a 45% tariff on everything that China sells into the U.S. 
this is you know predictable political bluster, but it, it's a manifestation of a deeper trend, and that is when a nation like the United States has problems, uh, we'd rather blame it on someone else. We don't want to take a tough, hard look at the mirror and uh, you know address what we can do to fix our own problems. We'd rather put that uh, on the, uh, the doorstep of uh, of others, and uh, you know China uh, has uh, actually moved its currency up sh- very sharply since uh, 2005 to today. Even after the uh, the recent sell-off of the Chinese currency relative to the dollar, uh, you know the, the the Chinese yuan is about 25 percent above the levels relative to the dollar that it was in uh, mid 2005, and, and China's uh, overall imbalance, trade imbalance with the world, has come way, way down. It's still large with the U.S., uh, but, uh, again, that's more of a reflection of some of our issues than necessarily theirs. What what would you be looking for in the coming period to understand if the economic situation in China is deteriorating or not? Are there some particular flags or events that would give you a clue as to what the trajectory is going to be for the the next uh, period? The key thing I've always looked at is um, uh, job growth uh, is is a uh, measure of uh, uh, the risk to social instability. When uh, China uh, gets into trouble, uh, it will do any everything and anything uh, to avoid an outbreak of rising unemployment uh, that might portend a new outbreak of social instability. Uh, so far, the job numbers are actually holding up quite well, which is another, uh, I think, very powerful sign that the economic doomsters have really got China wrong. Uh, last year, urban employment uh, expanded by 11 million jobs uh, in uh, uh, in China. It's about a, uh, a million more than the, the government was targeting, and an acceleration uh, from the pace in uh, 2014. But if it were to slip, uh, that would be worrisome, and I think the government would then pull out all stops to um, uh, re-stimulate uh, the economy. And the fact that the government has not taken uh, major stimulus actions right now, I think, is also consistent uh, with the notion that um, uh, they, they don't do not believe the economy is in as dire shape uh, as those on the outside looking in. You're listening to The Next Debate. I'm Rudyard Griffiths. My guest is the former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia and a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute of Global Affairs, Stephen Roach. Coming up, Stephen Roach explains why the actions of central banks, not the Chinese government, are largely responsible for swooning global stock markets. Debate. 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 If you're enjoying this podcast, check out my exclusive interview with Stephen Roach in Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. Log on to www.globeandmail.com for thoughtful commentary and analysis of the issues and debates driving the public conversation. Again, the website, www.globeandmail.com, Canada's national newspaper. Just a final few questions. You know, while all eyes are focused on the Chinese economy right now, do you, do you think there are other bigger systemic economic risks that investors are ignoring right now at their peril? Well, I don't know if investors are ignoring them all, but they do seem to be overly fixated on China. To me, the far bigger risk is um, uh, we're now beginning to see the, the first efforts by the Federal Reserve to withdraw the extraordinary 
stimulus that was put in place after the crisis in the form of quantitative easing. And I, for one, have been very worried about uh, this prolonged injection of liquidity uh, that was initially designed to arrest the crisis, but then became a widely accepted tool of attempting to foster economic uh, recovery. I think that was a big mistake. I think the government uh, overly inflated asset markets um, uh, as it was making that mistake, and and the volatility uh, in markets uh, in the early days of 2016, uh, I think, is is also importantly traceable uh, to uh, a Fed that is attempting uh, to, to to get out of this policy trap. And I say the word attempting because I'm not I'm not convinced that they uh, really have figured out how to do this without uh, providing even greater disruption to the markets in the future. What do you see as the particular risk there? Is it the loss of liquidity? Is it the popping of bubbles? Where where do you see the the kind of Fed withdrawal as as pressing on a pressure point in the uh, global economy? Well, we we've just had a, a you know a renewed bout of froth uh, in in world financial markets as central bank after central bank has embraced these unconventional. Uh, liquidity injections of, 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 of quantitative easing. We've got interest rates at zero, uh, and central banks are saying that's fine because all we care about is targeting inflation, and inflation is not a problem, so we'll keep them at zero, uh, and um, uh, we'll, we'll continue to um, uh, run monetary policy with vastly expanded balance sheets that represent you know, massive injections of liquidity into financial markets, and that distorts the prices of, of, of assets. It makes assets trade at um, uh, unrealistically high multiples relative to their intrinsic underlying uh, earnings. And now as economic activity slows uh, and earnings come under pressure, then, then that artificial valuation starts to get challenged, uh, rightly so, uh, by investors. And then, of course, the central banks... Uh, panic because um, uh, they, they they do believe that uh, now their job uh, is to provide uh, not just support for the real economy but support for asset markets and I think that's a big strategic error. Do do you feel though that we're so far down that rabbit hole that it's going to be awfully hard to come up? I mean, you know, China is an example, extraordinary intervention into their markets to stabilize, you know, arguably following the Western example. Well, it hasn't worked. And, you know, when a, when a bubble pops, um, you know, it's almost impossible to catch a falling knife, and the, the, the Chinese authorities have, have learned that uh, painfully well. You know, that market is, is still under an awful lot of uh, pressure. And uh, that was certainly the uh, experience that the United States has had repeatedly uh, in um, fostering uh, asset bubbles and then doing everything in its power to arrest the downside. And in all those cases, it failed as well. But this um, extraordinary stimulus that was uh, injected into our system in the, the depths of the financial crisis in um, uh, late 08 and throughout 2009 and then was sustained through quantitative easing uh, for uh, another six years, um, that, that has led to uh, systemic distortions that um, are going to be with us for years and years to come. I know just finally that uh, the listeners of this podcast would want me to ask you, so what does an investor do? What, like, where would you allocate 
capital to what assets? Well, and... yeah, now that I'm an academic and I no longer work on Wall Street, I, I'm not compelled to, uh, nor do I really want to, um, you know, go on record as, as, as serving as an investment advisor here. I mean, these are difficult, treacherous times, and financial markets are uh, displaying an extraordinary amount of uh, uncertainty and volatility uh, in early 2016. And I think, you know, a, a prudent strategy is to stay very cautious and uh, not take an awful lot of risk in your individual portfolios uh, until uh, there's a clear sense of where the uh, underlying uh, economic fundamentals are heading and what, if anything, central banks are going to do to grapple with this big dilemma that we talked about earlier. Well, look, that's uh, probably the most honest piece of uh, financial analysis that that I've heard in quite some time. So, uh, Stephen Roach, always a pleasure, always a privilege, great insights. Uh, thank you for coming on the Next Debate podcast today. Thank you. Pleasure to talk to you. Stephen Roach was my guest today on The Next Debate. For more of his analysis on China and its impact on the global economy, be sure to search out his highly acclaimed book, Unbalanced, The Codependency of America and China. Visit The Next Debate webpage on www.monkdebates.com for the full transcript of this episode and my interview with Stephen Roach in Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. Thanks for listening to The Next Debate podcast. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, chair of The Monk Debates.